0: It's not that God gives us time back, but that He gives us back the wasted blessing of our life. That's how He restores what sin has eaten, what sin has destroyed. He gives us back that wasted blessing. Restoration will come through the Messiah. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan, Capistrano. welcome back and yeah last week last week we covered the whole book of Hosea all 14 chapters and uh, some of you came back so hey you know God bless and so tonight we're going to be covering the prophet Joel the book of Joel how many of you just by a show of hands just for fun how many of you love the book of Joel and you read it all the time it's your favorite book of the Bible Okay. Exactly. How many of you have ever uh, read the book of Joel? Oh, cool. Super cool. I personally have never read it. <laughs> could care, could care less. No, uh, I'm just kidding. Just teasing. But these are three very heavy chapters of the Bible. So, um, it's a small but mighty book. Let's pray and then we'll get into our study this evening. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and God, that all of it is inspired. Lord, you tell us that there is not a word that is wasted, and um, Lord, that you desire to teach us who you are, Lord, to reveal yourself through scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would do that again. Uh, as you've been so faithful to do. We pray, Lord, you'd soften our hearts to hear from you. Lord, that you'd open our our understanding, God, as to what the Holy Spirit would apply to us and make application in our own life. And um, Lord, we pray that, uh, like the prophet Joel said, Lord, that you would send forth your spirit to uh, awaken us again. Lord, we, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the book of Joel is where we are. It says in the first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, the prophet and the day of the Lord is the theme. We're gonna go through, as we go through each of these, we're gonna have kind of like two sentences to sum up what the books are about. Joel is the prophet and the day of the Lord, and it's about Israel and God's judgment. So, just be blessed. So that's gonna be fun. But we're going to see very clearly the cyclical themes that have been coming up throughout this study. And that is throughout all of, all of the minor prophets, the cyclical theme is return to Moses, repent of your sin, meaning return to the law and the covenant that you made uh, under Moses and repent of your sin and a restoration will come. That is, they, they, across the board, all of the minor prophets speak of that theme, including Jonah, in just a different way. It's really a fascinating kind of story. But um, we're going to see those themes, themes throughout this study, hopefully, tonight. And it's more, more than clear in the, in the book of Joel, for sure. But Joel, we don't know much about him. All we know is that he was the son of Pethuel, whoever that was. Like, we don't even know who that guy was. So there's not much to go on uh, about who he is and the background, as well as the time frame in which we put his writings. But there is no mention of the king at that time, so it's hard to place him within history. It's a difficult place uh, to place it in the time frame. But he is one of the earliest of the written prophets, Amos actually quotes him, which we'll cover next week. So many scholars believe that he was a prophet at the time of Elijah and the contemporary of Elisha. Uh, And you can read their stories in in the Old Testament as well. This book centers around five days of the Lord, which are all precursors to the great day of the Lord, which is to come. So there's a near fulfillment within history of, of prophecy, and there is a future fulfillment. Like, we're going to go from the Old Testament tonight, and we're going to go all the way to glory, the resurrected Christ, as well as further on into our future, that is our future, that is heaven itself sitting beneath the throne of God where rivers and torrents of living water will gush out. Like, it goes from... That kind of history, and he, he sees far into the future and, and writes these things down. And it's not just him. These things are picked up in Ezekiel, as well as uh, the book of Revelation. We'll see it in the Gospels. All of these themes are seen throughout, as well as the day of Pentecost is predicted and, and um, prophesied in this book. So within these three chapters, it's a heavy book, Um these five days of the Lord, and to say the day of the Lord is just means that God does something significant on that day. That's, that's what that means. But we jump in here, day one, in verse two, it says, hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. He says, listen up, old men. All you old men, listen up. Has anything like this happened in our days or even in the days of your fathers? He, he speaks to the old guys. And he says, listen, before you go on saying back in my day, it was 10 times worse. He says, you, this has never happened in the history of history. Like this is the worst it's ever been. So before the old timers go, well, back in my day, you know, and, and begin to reminisce about how like, right? Every, every, even I do it. I want to say that I'm not old, I am. I was much stronger in my memory of, of what I'm actually capable of doing, you know what I mean? Like back in my day, even with all these electric bikes around town, And all these kids who have never had a pedal in their life, and and they're just zooming around, and you're like, man, you got it so easy. I remember having like only six gears, and you're like, I need an eighth, or whatever. And, And here they are, just, anyway. I digress. That's the old man in me. That's what Joel is speaking to. All you old men that would say, man, back in my day, it was so bad. He says, can't say that. Because of the day of the Lord and what they're experiencing. He kind of comes into, or we step into, what is already going on in this book. And that is, he says, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children, another generation, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust have eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste to my vine and ruined my fig tree. Notice the capital M's in those sentences. Israel is likened to a vine and a fig tree throughout Scripture. It's a type throughout the whole thing. So as as you see it mentioned through Scripture, it, it, that's kind of the the picture of Israel is seen as a vine or a fruitful vine or as a fig tree. Uh, and there's prophecies concerning those things as well that you can go into later on your own. But what we step into is this plague of locusts. Hence, Jiminy cricket on the board, right? It's like a cute little mascot for the minor leagues, the locust. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Clearly, it's not. So these locusts have taken out every food source, every food source. He says that, that when they came, like the, the chewing locusts, he, he goes through every step of like the development of these animals. Now, uh, I was reading a story in 1915, a swarm of locusts, or a uh, you know swarm came into the Middle East. It said it was so big that it blocked out the sun. You couldn't see. It created darkness. It was such a big swarm of locusts. And when it landed, it took out all the crops. In, in days, uh, within each square foot, the, the locusts would lay 65,000 to 75,000 eggs. When they would hatch, everything that wasn't destroyed when they first landed was then taken out by their children, like the little baby larva grasshopper thingies. And then, as they sprouted wings, they then continued to take out more and more and more. So you can get the sense that what Joel is describing is a, a, a destruction unlike anything else. Because they don't have food to feed their animals. They don't have animals to eat anymore. Like, it's affected every food source. And he's saying to people, like, wake up. Those of you who are just drunk at your house, like, wake up. This is a serious thing. Like, we're all going to die. We have no food. Like, this is a, a, a serious issue that's going on. It may be that the wickedness that they're experiencing or, or the reason that God is judging Israel this way or, or the southern kingdom of Judah is because of a wicked queen, Queen Atalia. Not making this up. 2 Kings chapter 11, you can read her story. She steps into power, takes power for herself. She was either the daughter or the niece of Ahab who was the most wicked king. Um, actually had a, a worse wife named Jezebel, Right? how many of you have a friend named Jezebel? Do you really? It's coming back, right? It's coming back. It's coming back strong, right? But for years, we didn't hear that name. Like, we haven't heard, like, this is my sweet baby girl, Jezebel. Why? Because it's associated with evil, right? Like, you Jezebel, right? And you can hear it in a southern accent. Now, or Delilah. For a long time, Delilah wasn't around. Why? Because of the story of Samson and Delilah, right? And then those guys playing white tees wrote that song, <laughs> oh, "Hey Delilah." Okay, and everyone's like, "Oh, it's my sweet baby girl, Delilah." In history, the connotation was that she was a loose woman. So, so like those names were like stayed away from. Correct? Jezebel, she's a wicked woman. Atalia or Athalia, I don't know how to say it. And why should I have to know everything? You don't know. Why do I have to know? Okay? <laughs> this woman was a wicked queen. Wicked. I mean, the things that, and I think a lot of times we think, um, we think that, that God's being harsh. Like you have to understand the depths of the wickedness of Israel. During the Minor Prophets, like we said last week, it was the worst time theologically in the history of God's people. Like these are God's chosen people that he rescued out of Egypt. He gave them the covenants, the laws, and they have diverted towards false gods. And the way in which they worship those things was incredibly wicked, right? So God is judging his people through this plague of locusts. Now, in verse 9, it says, The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. Under her rule and reign... The, the ceremonies in the temple were allowed to keep on going and they only ceased once they had run out of food. Now, I'm telling you that because even though she was a wicked king, yeah, go ahead, have, have your ceremonies. They were allowed to have those. And I think it's interesting that the devil doesn't mind ritual and ceremony. Doesn't mind it at all. You can have as many rituals and ceremonies as you, as you desire. His intention is to corrupt True religion. And so, in corrupting it from the inside, it corrupts it as it goes out. Rather than eliminating it, he chooses to corrupt it. What God desires is devotion not to ceremony or to ritual. That's not what God desires. It's devotion to Him, it's the worship of Him, not the worship of method. And so the devil will always seek to try and get us off course in ceremony or in ritual or in um, religiosity. It's a big one. It's a big theme throughout the New Testament. And Jesus will actually um, rebuke those who fell into deep religiosity. And, And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But this day one of the day of the Lord continues as you move throughout the text. It says the vine has dried up, the fig tree is withered, speaking of the ground and things around them. But in verse, um, I think it's verse 17. It says, the seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain has withered, how the animals groan! the herds of the cattle are restless, because they have no pasture, even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and flame has burned all the trees of the field." So not only is there this locust, like where each stage of this little bug is taking out every food source, then everything just lights on fire. And he says the seed that is underground is being affected. Like it's becoming this deserted wasteland where nothing can live and nothing can thrive. Fire breaks out. All they could do was cry out to heaven. That's all they could do is cry out to God like, God, help us. Like, the, the, everything's come through here, it's destroyed, and now everything's on fire, like the ground is, we can't feed ourselves, we can't feed our animals, there's nothing we can do. It seems harsh, but guys, it's, it goes back to what the book of Deuteronomy tells us, that God said, obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. This is a very simple covenant that God made with them. He says, be careful or carefully follow the terms of this covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 9, I believe, says so that you may prosper in everything that you do. It says, the whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur, nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebuyim, which is the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 25, it says, and the answer will be, It is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them. And when he brought them out of Egypt, they went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, and gods they did not know, gods they had not given them. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land so that it brought out all its curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them and from their land and thrust them into another as it is now. This is something that the Lord spoke to his people early on in the book of Deuteronomy. He told them, if you follow the covenant, if you keep it, if you keep it, you will be blessed. And he, he made it very clear. I mean, fire. He says it's like going to light on fire. <laughs> you know, he doesn't like hold anything back. But he tells them, this is, if you thought the locust was bad and the fire was bad, it's only going to get worse. God bless you. Welcome to church. Are you uplifted? Or are you just like, feel so good inside? Yes, burning with fire and bugs. Like, it's the last thing we want to look at. But it gets worse. But I I, I love that God in his grace, he warns people. He warns the nation of Israel, doesn't he? God in his grace and love and and mercy, he warns people over and over. Right? Just just sends warning. I appreciate warnings, personally, as an adult nowadays. Like, warning warning. Railroad. I appreciate that warning. Warning, this may cause cancer. I appreciate that warning. Does it affect me? Not all the time. Neither did it work in the nation of Israel. God warned them if you disobey. And why do you think with such a harsh warning, why did they even go that way? What would possess a person to hear a warning like this? Like if you disobey, the land will burn like it did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, that was a big deal. Why would they not listen to that? Is it because sin is so incredibly unfun? Not at all. It's because sin gratifies you immediately. Isn't isn't it true? Sin promises you a great future, although it satisfies in the moment, it only leads us to a, a dismal future. It just takes longer to get there sometimes. God, in his forbearance, in his grace, and in his long-suffering for you, is patient. But understand that sin has a consequence. It does. And here it is. And and Joel is experiencing it. And he's saying, this is because, guys, we must return back to the Lord. Like, that's our only hope. As we cry out to heaven, may we return to the Lord and repent of our sin. Remember those cyclical themes that come up. If you think that was bad, day two, day two of the Lord. A, this is a futuristic dark army, which sounds like some crazy weird cartoon you'd find on deep Netflix. But it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the Lord tremble, of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread. Over the mountains, a people come great and strong, the like of whom there has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns, and land is like the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, surely nothing shall escape them. It's unclear which invasion, right? This is pre-exile of Israel. Uh, They'll be exiled a few times because of their disobedience to the Lord, um, and God will chasten them through these exiles. But it's unclear which invasion Joel is predicting, perhaps one that didn't end up happening. And and let me say this is not Joel being a false prophet. This is because if the people repented, they would not experience this dark army. Perhaps it's a futuristic one that's yet to come. uh, some believe Ezekiel chapter 38 speaks of the armies of the north, whether it's Russia and Iran and these other armies that will come down to fight against Israel. But what's interesting, if you look at Israel's history, how many times they have been outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and they have won. Israel should not exist. It should not exist as a country. It has been threatened with nuclear explosion and desolation and just flat out Iran saying, we are going to blow you off the face of the map. And we have a clock that is ticking down to your destruction. (laughs) And like nothing happens to them. Like, they exist. You can go to the border of Syria and Israel and look over into Syria where they have tanks that are still sitting there where they were fighting and one tank went up against 12 and killed them all and beat them all. Like it's there. You can see it. Why? Because you don't mess with God's people. God has, has put a protective, like he protects them and you can see it throughout their entire history. They should not exist. You guys seen that shield thing that they have? That is cool. Like, what's it called? So rad. Like, who does that? Who has that? Israel does. But when he describes this army, he describes an army much like the locusts and the fire. It's... as if to say that you thought the locusts were bad and the fire was bad. This army will work like those two things. And they're going to come swiftly and they're going to work together. Look what it says in verse three. A fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. A land in the garden of Eden before them and behind them is desolate. Verse four, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds so they run. With noise their chariots over the, the mountaintops they leap like the noise of flaming fire and devours the stubble like a strong people set in battle array before them and the people writhe in pain all faces are drained of color they run like mighty men they climb on the wall like men of war everyone marches in formation and they do not break rank they do not push one another everyone marches in his own column though they lunge between the weapons uh, they are not cut down they run and throw in the city and they run on the wall and they climb in the houses and they enter in the windows and thieves He's describing this army, he's like, they fight like nothing's ever, like no one's ever fought before. So if you think that these things are bad, know that there's an army coming. Get right, is what he's saying. But look at verse 11. This is interesting. The Lord gives voice before his army. For his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? Who has sent this army? What did the text just say? His army. So the real power behind it is God. It's God himself. Now, it's interesting that you and I, the Bible says that we will experience tribulation in this life, right? Meaning we will go through trial, we will go through tribulation, we will have difficulty. There's a difference between tribulations and trials that we experience and the great tribulation of the end times, right? This is the great, the great tribulation, and we will experience tribulation. The only difference, or the differences is, basically, is the source in which they come from. Tribulations that we experience often are from the devil, from the enemy, who seeks to attack us and, and get us off track and all of that spiritual warfare that goes into it. The great tribulation is from the hand of God himself. So understand that the difference of those is the source in which they come. The the army here in the text tells us the real power behind it lies in that God has sent them. But look at verse 12, okay? So it paints this picture of dark gloom and death and destruction. Turn, repent, come back. Verse 12, now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Surrender your heart and not your garments return to the Lord your God for he is gracious merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and he relents from doing harm so remember the themes of these books return to the covenant return to the Lord repent of your sin and what does he say restoration will come restoration will come. He says, now, in light of the warning signs all around you, in light of what, what is, is coming, he says, guys, turn to me. Turn to me. Turn to me means just simply to return back to the Lord. In, in later, he says, return with all of your heart. With all of your heart means the inner man, the mind, the will, the heart, the soul, and the understanding of man. He says, in in this way, I'm desiring for you to return to me. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. It says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God who will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. What a wonderful reminder. Even as early as Deuteronomy telling them, when you go astray, when God chases after you with with trial and with tribulation, when God is trying to get you to come back to him, he says, return to the Lord. Why? He appeals to the nature and the character of God. He he tells them this is why, because this is who God is. Verse 13, it reminds us to, he says, rip your heart, not your shirt. Amen, right? So, <laughs> True repentance, he's saying. He says, don't just rip your clothes. That was a custom of the Jews when they were mourning or they were to, to express mourning, they would tear their clothes. So they would get bad news, they would, they would rip their shirts. Remember when um, at the trial of Jesus, at that illegal trial that night, they asked him, are you the son of the living God? Are you, are you the Messiah? And he says, "Is as if it's as you have said what happened? Caiaphas tore his clothes and he said, blasphemy, blasphemy, right? He's mourning, the sign of, of, of mourning. And so he rips, he says, don't just rip your garment, like don't just rip your shirt. Like what does that prove? On the outside, he says, I want inward transformation. What God desires is true repentance and brokenness over our sin. Not just, man, I feel so bad for what I did, but like understanding what sin does in our life. Guys, I know we can read these and go like, this is really far from us. We don't experience locusts or or futuristic dark armies (laughs) on a regular basis. But listen, there is a spiritual lesson here. There's a spiritual principle, and that is no matter how far you get, when you begin to disobey God and get away from God, sin brings about desolation in anyone and everyone's life. It doesn't matter. The devil doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care about your past. He doesn't care about your gender. He doesn't care about your sexuality. He doesn't care what happens in a life of someone who disobeys God and continues down that road. It brings about destruction. It always does. That is the result in which it will bring. There is no other result in the Bible. There is no other like, oh, but part B is that it will bring you a lot of satisfaction in the moment. Yeah, but it also brings about destruction. Always, 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 always. You guys have heard me tell this story like a million times, but it's rad, so, so I'm going to say it anyway. There was a little girl walking through the forest. <laughs> <clears throat> Stick with me. There's a little girl walking through the forest on a cold, blustery day. And she came across... Uh, A snake. She almost stepped on this rattlesnake. You guys heard the story? Don't stop me if you heard it. So she's startled, like, oh my gosh, a snake. Like most normal people should, right? If you're like, oh, I want to pick it up. You're weird and sick. But she's startled by this snake. But even more startling is that the snake began to speak to her, talk to her. And he said the, the snake speaks to her and says, I am so cold. And it is, it's such a harsh day out there. Could you pick me up and put me in your jacket? Like, just to keep me warm for a moment. And her initial reaction, obviously, is like, no, you're a snake. You're going to bite me. But the snake begins to reason with her. And he says, listen, I promise you, I would never do that. I'm a nice snake. I promise you that I won't bite you. Just please, if you could just, for a moment. I mean, God loves all creatures, doesn't he? God loves all creatures. And and don't look upon my appearance. Like, I promise. And he begins to reason with her. And over time, she begins to reason with the snake and listen to him. And she says, okay, if you promise, I'll put you in my jacket only for a moment. And so she picks up the snake. She puts it in her jacket. No sooner than she puts it in her jacket, she feels two fangs sink deep into her wrist. She throws the snake down, and she says, you promised You promised me you wouldn't bite me. And the snake says to her, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Guys, sin, you know exactly what it is when you pick it up. The issue is we begin to reason with it and we begin to listen to it and to what it promises us. But really, what it's going to give us is death. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin, what sin pays us as its slave is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We've been given something so much better. And so, what, what um, the Lord encourages His people to do is, is don't tear don't tear your shirt. I don't need that outward appearance. What I really want is your heart to break over what sin has done. In the same way that Jesus wept over Israel, as he looked upon it, and he he weeps over what he saw in Israel that they miss their Messiah and he weeps over them, is the same desire that God has for us to look at our own sin and begin to, to weep over what pain it has caused. Not just me, but what, what pain it has caused those around me and the pain that it causes the Lord. But no, guys, God doesn't leave us there. He's not like cry about it, feel bad about it. <laughs> Do it! Or else! Why does the Bible encourage us to repent? It's not so that you can get caught. It's not so you can finally have that release. If you're like sitting in the dark and you're like, no one knows. And you're like, I just feel this guilt. And God's like, just repent and you'll feel better. Why does it tell us to repent? Look what it says. Rend your heart. Return to the Lord your God for he is, what? Gracious, merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Repent. Why? In light of the character and the nature of God, come in confidence in repentance that God will restore because he is so good. That's the encouragement. Like, keep a short list with God. Don't let the the list run long and come back and be like, I'm so sorry, and here's all the reasons why. I think a lot of times we're afraid just what, what might happen if we're actually honest with God. Like if, he, if I actually verbalize the things that I've done or the, the sins that I've committed or if I verbalize my repentance, like then he'll really know. He already knows. Like he already knows. He's not shocked. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe it. Like your mom, you know, when you tell her, mom, I did this. She's like, I can't believe you would do that. My boy, that was always my mom's reaction. You did that? Yes, mom because I'm a sinner. Anyway, you know. But this isn't the only place that the Bible says that. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. In fact, even his own prophet, Jonah, chapter 4, verse 2 Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, and he preaches the message that God told him to. And people get saved, and they turn, and God relents from his anger. He doesn't burn the city with fire. And Jonah says this to the Lord, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, it, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah says, I knew you were going to do this. I knew that you're gracious. I, I knew that you'd be merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger. Jonah knew this about God's character. It's just a funny way of proving the point. Like he, he goes there with this like, well, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe God will just finally like and get in touch with that mean side of himself and he'll really burn this place. But God is desire in, in every people group is to be gracious to you, and to be merciful to you. The Bible tells us that God is long-suffering. I thought about that today, as we're looking at the world around us, and I'm thinking, I've heard a lot of people like, Lord, just come, burn them all, like, let's go, I'm ready to go. Do you know why God hasn't yet? Because God is gracious and merciful. Imagine it, tonight, no matter like, where you got saved, imagine God had come before that. Aren't you glad that God is long-suffering, and patient, and kind? Aren't you? And the same grace that I desire for myself is the same grace I need to extend. Lord, would you be merciful and gracious and long-suffering again, that revival would be poured out and more people would know you. Because far worse than a plague of locusts and a weird, dark future army is the fires of hell that burn forever. That is the destiny of those who do not know Christ. And Jesus has done everything he he could possibly do so that you and I don't have to go there. And so the theme of this book, return, repent, restore, and restoration will come. Verse 25, look what it says. um, Moving right along. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts, My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. God will restore, he says. He can restore those years of destruction. Like we said, there is a spiritual type when we continue to run after the things of sin and the things of the world, there is destruction that follows. And God says, no matter how far you're gone, how far you think you're gone, or how how distant you are, I can restore if you will come in confidence and believe that God can. Unrepentance is the only thing that'll keep you from it. It's the only thing that will keep you from restoration is your unrepentance, your unwillingness to come to God in humility. Like, it's not God who's keeping it from you, it's you. You ever hear people say, like, you're your own worst enemy? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, you are. So, so God doesn't give us that time back. Charles Spurgeon, he said, it's not that God gives us time back. He's not like, you're, you're 12 again. You're like, woohoo, I got all these years to redo it. That doesn't happen, because if that happened, I'd be 12 again. But, but what does he say? It's not that God gives us time back, but that he gives us back the wasted blessing of our life. That's how he restores what sin has eaten, what sin has destroyed, he gives us back that wasted blessing. Restoration will come through the Messiah eventually. And by the coming of the Messiah, the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass... Afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also, my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The Old Testament is marked by limited few who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Joseph in the book of Genesis, the artists who who were tasked with building the ark of the covenant in the book of Exodus, Joshua in the book of Numbers, Othniel in Judges chapter 3, Samuel in 1 Samuel, David in 1 Samuel. These are all people that were specifically given a filling of the Holy Spirit. It is not vastly given to all. It was limited and it was few. If you wanted to experience God, there was a three-foot-thick curtain that you could not come past. You could only go up to it, and if you extended your hand, you would die in the presence of God. Like, we don't, they didn't get to experience the, that kind of presence of God that we get to experience in, in the Old Testament. But Joel looks ahead to the day of Pentecost, where God's presence would be poured out upon all flesh through the sending forth of his spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter actually references Joel's prophecy. He quotes this on the day of Pentecost. Peter is experienced the pouring out of God's spirit. He's experiencing what Joel had prophesied, and he's quoting what Joel had prophesied as he's experiencing what Joel had prophesied. That as the Messiah would come and bring restoration, not just in the sense of fixing everything that's broken, but restoring relationship back between man and God. There's now a bridge to where we can, God can come to us and we can get to God. Through Christ, he then sends forth his spirit They're in the upper room, they're in Jerusalem. Men are praying and gathering, and on the 10th day, a mighty rushing wind, or the sound of a mighty rushing wind fills the room. Tongues of fire appear on their head, and they begin to speak in languages that they don't know, proclaiming the truth and the, and the goodness of God, the gospel message, and 3,000 people get saved on the day of Pentecost. And this is when Peter stands up and he says, hey, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He says, that's what we're experiencing right now. Because of Christ, the Messiah has come to restore and to save and to seek those who are lost. So it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to see it fulfilled in Pentecost. But does it stop there, it continues. In Joel chapter three, there's a lot of other cool stuff in the, in the rest of the chapter and you should read it. But in chapter 3, it then goes even further than to, to now the last seven years, of the tribulation of, of, um, that we find in the book of Revelation. It says, For behold, in those days, at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat simply means the Lord judges. There is no valley of uh, a Jehoshaphat. but what, what it means is that God is going to bring them all into this valley for judgment. This is the gathering or the battle of Armageddon where men have gone from work to war. They take their plowshares and, and their farming tools and they, they make them into spears and swords to fight against God. This is the battle of Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16, it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For behold, I am coming like a thief, Blesses the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, and, and he may not go about naked and, and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is Hebrew. In Hebrew, is called Armageddon. Here it is. Joel takes us all the way to this final battle, to where there is no battle. Simply the Lord speaks, and a sword goes out from his mouth, and it's over. Now, it says that he brings them to the valley of decision. If you look in verse 14, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. The decision is not theirs. They're not like, hmm, I guess I'll follow God. It's not their decision. It's God's decision. Here he is, making his final decision. In Joel chapter 3, verse 18, it says... As that, that battle ends, it says, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and water from the, from the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be desolate, Edom desolate, because of the violence against the people of Judah. Verse 21, For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Where does he take us? He takes us to that millennial reign of Christ. Ezekiel chapter 47, it says, then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issued from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. This takes us to a time after Jesus' triumphant return in the millennium. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8, it says this, On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them of the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Oh, that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. takes us to Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God, and then the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will, be there, will there be any accursed but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or light or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Joel sees this day and he says fountains of living water will gush from the throne of God. And the theme, again, in order to see that, you need restoration of your sin. You need Christ. What Joel says that sin brings destruction, if we will repent, if we will return, the Messiah will bring restoration. He will restore that wasted blessing. The only thing keeping you from it is you. It's unrepentance. It's pride. It's, and you name it, we can go down the list of what it is. You got, I got issues with this. I got issues with that. Okay. Sure. We all have issues. Like, right? That's why we go to church. Like, I got issues. If I wasn't in church all the time working at one, <laughs> I got major issues. So, so I need to be here all the time. But I want to I close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, there is a text... Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered or saved, he says. And he says this, Believe it and obey it. It is a gracious gift. Take it and be rich forever. What an amazing book of the Bible. Joel, who knew? Three chapters of just straight, literal fire and bugs (laughs) in the throne of God. I mean, it, it, it... covers a lot of stuff and I know I read a lot of verses and I know I, I opened up a lot of really crazy themes like the millennial reign of Christ and and the seven-year tribulation and all that stuff again the main theme of it is if you want to see that stuff if you want to see Christ and in in water coming from his throne you need to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior There is no sin that can keep you out of heaven except the rejection of the Savior of Jesus Christ. The rejection of the Holy Spirit pulling you to Jesus. That'll that'll keep you out. That's the only thing. There is no sin that Christ, his blood, does not have the power to forgive. The only thing that'll keep you out is rejection of it. So I pray tonight, like Spurgeon said, Believe it, obey it, and take it. It is a gift from God, and you will be rich forever. Rich forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this book, this mighty little book. And Lord, I know for me, I don't fully understand all of it. And I'm not gonna try and pretend that I do. But Lord, I do know that you are trying to tell us something, that if we're far from you, we're only words away from being close again. Lord, as your word tells us, repent, return, and God, you will restore because you are a gracious and you're a merciful God who relents from anger and relents from harm. And so, Lord, whatever mess we've gotten ourselves into, and there are many, and it probably won't be the last one. Or may we take this time in our own heart and our own mind, or just to get right with you, to experience your grace again, to experience the, the overflow of the Holy Spirit again in our life. Or maybe that flow has been cut off by our own sin and unbelief. Lord, we pray that you would fill us up again. And we thank you for that promise in the book of Joel, Lord, that the Messiah would come and he would bring restoration, that that you have made a way for us to be right with God. We thank you for that. And Lord, it's not by anything that we do, it's not by a law that we keep, it's simply by faith that we come to you. And so Lord, uh, we pray you minister to us, minister these things to our hearts as we just close the night worshiping you and singing to you and fellowshipping with one another. Lord, I pray you continue this